Your Bibles, turn to the book of Daniel, and we'll be in chapter number three tonight. The book of Daniel, chapter number three. And everybody knows about chapter number three of the book of Daniel. Because when you were a little kid and you were in Sunday school, you remember those names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? If you don't, you went to a really bad Sunday school. In fact, I think that was taught like every other week, you know, because it's, everybody knew the story. The kids loved the story. But old Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are going to get in a lot of trouble here tonight. And, and, uh, and they're going to be thrown in the fiery furnace. We won't get that far tonight, but, but uh, we'll see the Son of Man, one like the Son of Man, which it is the Son of Man, walking with them in that fiery furnace. And so there's some really good news in this chapter. But, but I just kind of want to alert you to the fact that there might be something deeper going on in the book of uh, Daniel chapter number three. What's interesting to me is that Daniel, the book of Daniel has, is an, intended to be what kind of book? Prophetic book. And so I'm going to look for prophecy in all of these chapters, not just the chapters where, where we got clear visions of prophecy. Maybe there's some prophecy going on in chapter number three, and I believe there is. I believe we get a great type of a prophecy type that we're going to be taught about in the book of Daniel. Now, we won't get that far tonight, but uh, next week when we're looking at it, we will. So just want to kind of alert you to that as you, as you look at the story. But if you remember last time, uh, Daniel had interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and uh, he had told him uh, he, in which, which Nebuchadnezzar saw this, this great image of a man, and he had this head of gold, and he had silver arms and a silver chest, and he had bronze belly and iron legs and feet of iron and clay. And uh, each metal represented one of the one world governments that would rule the world uh, throughout history. And, and uh, Nebuchadnezzar was told, hey, good news, you're the head of gold. Remember what Daniel told him in chapter 2. Look in chapter 2, verse 37. He says, oh, you, O oh king, are king of kings. I mean, man, Nebuchadnezzar had to be feeling pretty good at this point. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, and strength and glory. And wherever the children of man dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand. You're a one-world ruler. You're ruling over the earth. And he has made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. You are the head of of gold. Now, what did Nebuchadnezzar do at this point? You remember what he did? He fell prostrate at the feet of Daniel. And indirectly what he was doing, he was worshiping the God of Daniel. I mean, uh, and then he did some great things for Daniel, and he did some great things for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He gave him a great, uh, uh, very important position in his government, and so, so things were looking pretty good. But here's the problem. Nebuchadnezzar had, been, had seen the light of the glory of God. He had, he, had, he had seen light. I mean, in that vision, God had, had, had shown him uh, his plan for the future. And so uh, what should Nebuchadnezzar have done at this point? He should have worshipped Jehovah God. He should have worshipped Yahweh. But he didn't come to that light. At this point, at least, he didn't come to that light. 
And so he worshiped him with his lips, but his heart was far from him. And so instead of being humbled like he should have been, uh, he got really puffed up because, I mean, he, he was enraptured with uh, his own greatness because he was the head of gold. And so what does he do? He goes out and builds this big statue of gold. He figured, I'm not going to just be the head. I'm going to be the whole thing. Now, anyone who ever has a supernatural experience faces the same danger, the same danger that Nebuchadnezzar did. It's real easy to get puffed up when you have a supernatural experience. What happened to Paul when he was carried up into the third heaven? I'm pretty sure that was Paul. He, wasn't, he won't even speak of it in the first person, but we're pretty sure it was him. What, what happened? He was given a thorn in his flesh that never went away the rest of his life to keep him humble. Probably something really gross oozing out of his eyes the rest of his life. So he was a humble man. And a, and a, super, and a, and a supernatural experience should do exactly that for us. What it should do is humble us. What happened to Job when he saw the Lord? I mean, he repented in dust and, ash, dust and ashes. What happened to Isaiah when he saw the Lord high and lifted up? He, he, he fell on his face too, didn't he? And uh, he said, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. And so that should be our reaction to a supernatural experience. But our human pride often makes us act differently. You know... When I got saved, I had a supernatural experience. But let me say this. If you're truly saved and you're in this room tonight, you had a supernatural experience when you got saved. You had a real supernatural experience. If you didn't have a supernatural experience, you're not saved. Because salvation is supernatural. And what I thought when I got saved, and I'm ashamed to say this, but I thought, man, I must be really special for God to pick me and, and save me. You know, I was lucky he didn't just strike me down dead in my pride. But he's a loving God and he's a merciful God. And what did he do instead? He put me in a diaper truck, driving a diaper truck. <laughs> he began to humble me. And he has ways of humbling you. So you have your choice on how you react to these experiences. I mean, you can get all puffed up, but you're going to come way down if you do. Or you can be like Job, and you can be like Isaiah, and when you have a supernatural experience, you shut up about it, and you just praise the Lord. And you say, why? Look at the Lord. Look at the Lord, and look at me. Who am I but a worm that the Lord would have concern for me? And so Nebuchadnezzar at this point in the story, he thinks he's really special. He doesn't think that just... Jehovah God loves him. He thinks that all the gods love him. He's probably figured Jehovah God's the greatest God, and he's made him king of kings. So, man, you know, they all love me. And uh, so he's going to do something really stupid, uh, and later, and, and he's going to get really puffed up. And we'll see later on in a coming chapter that God's going God's to work on him. God's patient with him, and he's going to humble him in a mighty way. But let's look at his prideful 
response to this vision that God gave him and the interpretation of the vision. Look at his prideful response. Verse number one. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was 66 cubits, or 60 cubits, I'm sorry, and its width was six cubits. What's that six? 66. What is that? That's the number of men. Whenever man decides to lift himself up above God, you're going to see those sixes. And the ultimate 666, the Antichrist, when he declares himself to be God. And that's really what Nebuchadnezzar's doing here. And that's really what we're getting a type of right here. We'll look at it later on. But he set this image up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, that had to be some strange-looking statue, if you think about it. Because it was nine feet wide and 90 feet tall. What's the ratio of height to width there? Ten to one. The normal height to width of a human being is four to one. And so this was one skinny dude that was raised up like a stick raised up in the air, 90 feet. But he had to be, but why was he raised so high? So he could be seen from almost anywhere. And he was placed in the plain of Dura, and most of the people lived along the mountain ledges. And so whenever they looked out into the valley, what did they see? They saw this image of gold that uh, represented Nebuchadnezzar. And so um, uh, it had to be some sight. Some scholars say it was solid gold. I don't think there's a country in the world that has enough gold to make a statue that big solid gold. I mean, more than likely, it was, it was made of wood. And it was, it was overlaid with gold. Uh, but you don't know. That, that would have taken a national treasure to build a statue like that. But, but in any case, it had to be some sight. I mean, the fact that you, you, you imagine when the sun hit this gold statue in the, in the morning and in the evening, it would just glow. And so Nebuchadnezzar builds the statue. He's all excited about it in verse number 2. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word together together the satraps and the administrators and the governors and the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the promises, provinces, to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And guess what? They came. So the satraps, the administrators, he made them an offer they couldn't refuse. I promise you, they were afraid of him. So the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So once he's got it completed, it's set up in the plain of Dura. Uh, he's ready to unveil it. He brings in the most important people in the world. And then he brings the common people too. I mean, all you got to do is look at the next verse because look at what the herald says. It says, then a herald cried out, to you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages. So he brought people from all, various people from all the various countries that he ruled over. Not just their governors and not just their judges and not just their satraps, but the common people too. And so, so uh, it had to be some sight. I mean, there had to be hundreds of thousands of people gathered there. And then he's got his own herald. He's got his own preacher. I mean, his booming voice. And he cries out, this, this, government, this, this uh, herald with his booming voice cries out, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages. And then look at verse 5 and 6. That at the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, the psaltery, the, 
in symphony. So he, had a, he actually had a symphony there. He had an orchestra there, a choir there, and with all kinds of music. I mean, what you need to do at that point, you fall down and you worship the gold image that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And if you don't, verse number six, and whosoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of the burning, fairy furnace. So some choice, huh? Worship the image or get cooked. That was your choice. That's the only choice you have. Now, no doubt, what, what was Nebuchadnezzar up to here? No doubt. Uh, seeing he was ruling over all of these nations. Each of these nations had their own gods. The Israelites had Yahweh. The other nations had, the Philistines had Dargon. I mean, uh, Ashereth. There were all of these gods from these various uh, nations. And, and that would cause the nation to not be so loyal to Nebuchadnezzar. So what he did, he set up this image in order to unite all the people under one God. Who was that God? Himself. Now, he allowed those countries to keep their gods as long as they subjected their gods to his image. What's that remind you of? Reminds you of, uh, it's a personality cult is what we're looking at here. It reminds you of emperor worship during the Roman times. The exact same thing. They, they, you, you worship the emperor. You were allowed to keep your gods as long as you were willing to worship uh, the, the, image, the, the emperor. Now, we actually see something similar happening, to that, happening today along those lines. Where? Where do we see that? North, where do we have a personality cult? North Korea. North Korea with Kim. It started with Kim Jong-un. And, and uh, I mean, it didn't start with Kim Jong-un. That's who, who the personality is now, the god of Korea is now. But before him was his father and his grandfather. Uh, there's a lady who defected from North Korea to South Korea. And she wrote a book about growing up in North Korea. And I haven't read the whole book, but I've read some excerpts from the book, and it's absolutely fascinating. Uh, her name is Hyena Seo Lee. And uh, uh, she, she defected in 2008. And in this book, she describes this personality cult. And she said when she was a schoolgirl, she was forced to watch executions of people accused of not worshiping the North Korean leader. They were forced to watch those executions. What was the purpose of that? Well, you either worship or you burn, or you either worship or you die. Uh, she, let, me, let me read what she says. She says, all family life took place beneath the obligatory portraits of North Korea's revered founder, Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il. The portraits hung in every home in North Korea. Failure to clean and look after the portraits was punishable by death. So if a North Korean soldier came in to your home and you had the, the portrait of Kim Jong-il Kim Jong and it was crooked, it wasn't perfectly level, he could kill you, he could shoot you and kill you. She goes on to say, she says, at supper, 
I had to thank the respected father leader, Kim Sung, for her food, for my food before I could pick up my chopsticks. She said that brutality and fear were everywhere. At the faintest hint of disloyalty, an entire family would disappear. And then their house would be roped off and they'd be taken away in a truck at night and they'd never be seen again. And she said there were spies and tattletales everywhere. If you really didn't like somebody and you wanted to get them in trouble, you just say, said to the authorities that they're not worshiping uh, Kim Jong-il or Kim Il-sung or, or uh, Kim Jong-un the way they were supposed to. Now, I imagine life in Babylon at this time was something similar to that with this personality called of King Nebuchadnezzar. And no doubt people lived in fear, and you can see why. You either worship the image or you're thrown into the furnace. And uh, so they were more than ready to obey the, the order. I mean, you, you fall down and you worship Nebuchadnezzar. You wor worship the image of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, let's pick up in verse number 7. So at that time when all the people heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, in symphony with all kinds of music, all the people, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the gold image which King, which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now why, did he, why do you think he brought the choir and he brought the symphony there? What, what was his purpose? What was he trying to do? He was trying to inspire an emotional experience. He wanted people to get really excited about worshiping his image. And so he had the best musicians in the land come. He had the greatest choir there to sing praises unto him. And, and here were these hundreds of thousands of people uh, gathered in this plain to worship this statue. And uh, this praise music is being played. The choir sings. And I, I imagine for some it had to be a pretty touching moment. Have you ever listened to a song and you just get, you know, you get chills because of the because you just the, the, the quality of the music, because of the size of the choir, because of the, the, the quality of the symphony. I mean, that's what was happening here. There's a lesson here. I mean, just because you're moved by a piece of music doesn't qualify that piece of music as worship. What is worship? What is worship? Is worship singing songs? I mean, what is worship? I mean, that's part of it, but what is worship? It means to count God worthy of who he is. And so, you know, if we're singing songs and we're not attributing worth to God, then we might get all sorts of fuzzy feelings, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's worship. I mean, that's why worship requires our attention. It requires, it requires an act. Of will. I mean, even our worship up here, you can't engage in this worship. I don't care how good of a job the worship team does. If you're just thinking, man, they're do I, have, I have to be careful with this as a pastor because I'm trying to think, are they doing good today or are they doing bad today? <laughs> Instead of giving worth to God. And, it, and, and I know maybe it's easier for you guys, but, but you should never get caught up in that trap. It doesn't matter how good the worship team is doing. Or how bad the worship team is doing. If it, it, they never do bad here. I'm not going to say that. But it doesn't, it doesn't matter. What matters is what, what are, you, are you actively worshiping God? Are you making a choice 
to give worth to God. And you can do that with any song, with any choir, with any orchestra, with any praise team. You can do that. You know, at Christmas time, I love to listen to the Mormon Tabernacle Choir do Christmas music. Man, you listen to that orchestra and that choir, you talk about giving you chills. But you know what? Those people are as lost as a goose. And now, I might can get a worship experience out of that, but they might be all feeling great, and man, this is really fantastic. I'm really close to God. Well, they can't get close to God because of their theology. Because you can't draw near to God unless, what what have we been learning in the book of Hebrews? Unless you come through the blood of Jesus Christ, and you've got to know who Jesus Christ is. You've got to know that he's Lord God. And no one calls him Lord except by the Spirit of God. And so, so, you know, just because a, some church has the greatest choir in the world doesn't necessarily, you might can worship in that situation, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they are. And that's what was going on here. I'm sure that this was, this was top notch, but, uh, and a lot of people were moved, but I don't think most people were moved by the, by the, the music. They were moved by what? By fear. And so what do they do? They all fell down and worshiped the image. All hundred, there's hundred thousands, hundred thousands of people. And they all fall down and they worship the image except for three. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You're talking about sticking out like a sore thumb. Here are 100,000 or more people on their face, and three guys are standing up, and they're refusing to worship. Now, here's the question you've got to ask at this point. Where's Daniel? Where's Daniel? I mean, I mean is, what's Daniel doing? I mean... The Bible says nothing about him bowing down. But the Bible says nothing about him not bowing down. So what's he doing? Well, there's been all sorts of explanations offered as to what Daniel was doing at this point, but but let me give you a few of them. The first one is he bowed down. He just bowed down. Why? Because he had been put into a position where he could help his nation, and he wasn't going to fight, use, there's some battles that aren't worth fighting sometimes. Sometimes you might fight a battle that, that would cause you to lose uh, the, the war, and he might have been more interested in winning the war and helping his Jewish people than he was winning this particular battle. But I kind of doubt that. That's just not the kind of guy Daniel was and is. That's just, that's just not who Daniel is. So I doubt that scenario a lot. Well, here's the second reason they said there's nothing in here about Daniel. That he did stand. He stood. But nobody dared to tattle on Daniel because he was like second in command in Babylon. And they figured maybe if you tattled on him, he was wielding a lot of power, 
you could lose your life for tattling on Daniel. Well, I don't buy that one either because there's a lot of those guys that were jealous of Daniel and hated Daniel, and later on when they get a chance to tattle on him, they all tattle on him. And so I don't buy that one either. So, so where is Daniel? Where is Daniel? Well, I think maybe the most uh, believable or probable solution to this problem is that by the providence of God, Daniel had gone on a long journey and he wasn't there for this event. And uh, there's another reason I'll take that stand, but I'll get into that next week. I think there's another reason, because I think we're given a picture here. And, and Daniel's absent because God in his providence has situated, made the situation such that, that Daniel could be absent. Now, here's the problem. If Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, let's say he was absent, and they took their stand and they died when he got back from that trip. If the Son of Man hadn't appeared with, with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and changed the heart of Nebuchadnezzar, they, Daniel would have been thrown in the fairy furnace the first time they called for worship of this statue. So, so uh, God knows what's going on here. He's, he's protecting everybody in this, and I think there's some prophetic meaning to it that we'll look at next week. Okay, let's go to, let's go to verse 8. He says, Therefore, at the time certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, watch this stuff. You know, this makes me sick. Oh, king, live forever. You're our God. We worship you. Please live forever so we can worship you forever. I mean, what kiss-ups, man. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the psaltery, the sympathy, with all kinds of music, shall fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of the burning fairy furnace. But there are certain Jews, those Hebrews, whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, was you gave these guys a really important position, which you really should have given to us, by the way. And now you can once you kill them. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. you you're due all sorts of honor, king. You're like a god. But they don't serve you or your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. They're Hebrews. They're never going to serve you. They worship Yahweh. Now, i got to imagine that in the midst of all of those hundreds of thousands of people, there had to be a lot of other Jews there that day. And I'm sure they all bowed down. So some of the Jews did, in fear, acquiesce to this command. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're different kind of guys. They're certainly people of principle. Certainly people who are willing to take a risk and and stand for their faith. And so, he's bas they basically say, they're never going to submit to you or your cult. So, but we will. So kill them, appoint us, and everything will be fine. I don't know that maybe Nebuchadnezzar hadn't already seen the fact that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had stood. And he probably might would have let it go. But now in front of all the satraps and governors and judges 
and hundreds of thousands of people, these three guys stood up to him. And he's embarrassed. No doubt he was embarrassed. Just like the king of Persia was when Vashti stood up to him. He's embarrassed, and so he's got to do something. And so uh, he's mad. So the Nebuchadnezzar, then Nebuchadnezzar in range and fury gave a command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar's thinking, you know, how could these men, who I entrusted with these great positions, I mean, why would they disobey my command? I mean, they could have faked it. They could have gotten down. I mean, you know, I, I don't care if they worship Yahweh God, but they, you know, they, they don't have to make this scene. You know what? That should have been, that's more light being given to this man. Now, he hasn't seen all the light yet. He's going to see it when he sees the Son of God walking down in the midst of the furnace. But at this point, he should have said, you know what? These guys really worship. This God that interpreted my dream, man, I know he's real because no, only God could do that. And these men worship that God, so I better just leave them alone. But he's embarrassed and he's mad, so he's got to do something. Now, we're going to stop there in the text. We, can't, we don't have time to go any further tonight, but, but I want you to see this as we finish up because this, what's happening to them, could very well be coming to a neighborhood near you real soon. There's a great lesson right here. One of the devil's favorite tactics in order to bring persecution on the children of God is to put you in a position where you stand out from the crowd. That's maybe his favorite tactic as far as persecuting people. And he knows, he knows where you've drawn your lines and where you're going to take your stand. And all he's got to do is get you in that position to where you take that stand and he believes he can bring you down. See, that's exactly what worries me about this homosexual marriage issue. I'm, I could care less if people want to go marry their dog. You know, I mean, that's sick, but, you know, yeah, it's coming. That's right. They want to go marry their dog and go to hell, and that's, you know, I feel sorry for them, but that's, you know, that's, that's it's really sad that's what's happening to our society, but, you know, I could, I could live with that. But what the devil has done, he's used the media, the, the media and the movies that, that we support, the television that we support, the corporations that we support, to make what's an abomination to God an acceptable practice. Not just an acceptable practice, but a practice that needs to be embraced by everyone. You either bow down and embrace it. That's where it's headed. 
You either bow down and embrace it, or you will face the consequences. Now, like I said, when I talked about this a couple of weeks ago on Sunday, it might take a while for us to get to this point, but that's where it's heading. He wants you to take a stand so that you can be persecuted and you can be silenced. Hey, if you're not speaking anyway, he'd probably leave you alone. But if you're out in the workplace and you're trying to share your faith and you're trying to stand for what you believe, he's going to try to silence you at some point. It's coming. I don't care what your job is, it's coming. I mean, all corporations are already making people sign statements saying that they embrace this issue. If you don't sign the statement, eventually the courts are going to allow them to throw you out of your job. You going to willing to take that stand or not? You know, it'd be up. To, yeah, I mean, that's where you, that's where it's all heading. I mean, it's not just the homosexual marriage issue. I mean, I mean, chaplains in the army, you know, are being told they can't pray in Jesus' name. You know, we've, sent, we've backed this up a little bit, and you can't pray in school. You can't name the name of Jesus. You can't bring a Bible into school. But you can bring a Quran into school, but you can't bring a Bible into school. You can, you can trade a group of terrorists for a deserter, but you can sign a deal with a group of terrorists, and you can't get a Christian freed. That's what we've come to. I recently saw a movie, some of y'all might have seen it, a decent movie called Divergent. I don't know if any of you saw that or not. And in the movie, the, the lead character is exactly that. She's a divergent. I mean, that means she's different from everybody else. And so she refuses to march in step with the evil one world leader's directions. And once she, it's found out that she's a divergent, then she's marked for death. See, that's what you and I are. If you're a truly a born-again Christian, you're a divergent. That doesn't mean you're stupid or strange or, well, y'all are strange. No, I'm telling you. You're like me. I won't even go that far. It, it doesn't mean you're nuts. But you're different if you're a true believer. We don't march in step with this evil world. And you can see it happening at every front in our society. The devil is moving society in such a way that we're soon going to stand out. If you're, if you're standing on what you believe, you're going to stand out like a sore thumb. And if you refuse to march in step with this evil world, what's the Bible say? Those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus might suffer persecution, will suffer persecution. But here's the good news. Take cheer. Because I don't care what fire the devil puts you in, Jesus is going to be right there with you. The greater the fire, the more you'll sense his presence. And that's what it's all about. He's going to get us through anything we have to go through. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.
Father, we just thank you for the good news of the Word of God and how you're in control of even an evil man like Nebuchadnezzar and, and those circumstances, Lord, you, you were directing every bit of that. You were directing his foolishness so that these three men could stand out. Lord, you've, you're directing the foolishness of this world so that we can stand out, so that we can be divergent. Lord, divergent for a reason. Divergent to show the world what it means to be a man or, or woman of God. A man or woman of character. A man or woman of righteousness and godliness and not ungodliness. Lord, the lines are being drawn so clearly. And we're going to have such an opportunity. And Lord, we know that no matter how difficult it gets during these trying days, that we can count on the fact that you'll be with us in the fire all the way, Lord. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.